Let us pray. O Lord God, when Thou givest to Thy servants to endeavor any great matter, grant us also to know that it is not the beginning, but the continuing of the same unto the end, until it be thoroughly finished, which yieldeth the true glory. Through Him, who for the finishing of Thy work laid down His life, our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, welcome back. If you go ahead and grab a seat, we're going to go ahead and get started. If you don't see me in church after this Sunday school, it's not because anything happened to me. I'm the preacher at Pompon Hill uh, today, and so um, we're going to make a quick escape following this class so that I can get up there, because if I don't make it up there, I'll have to leave town because I'll never be forgiven, perhaps. So I've got to get up there to be there in time. So today we are in 2 Timothy chapter 2, and we are going to look greater day at verses 20 through 26. So if you have your Bibles, and I saw a few people out there with them today, so there are stars in your crown. I just want you to know I do keep attendance, and, uh, and I, I do mark down. And while you're not going to get a $2 bill from me like the kids get in confirmation class, I might, if you bring your Bible, put in a good word with my boss. So, <laughs> chapter 2. Verses 20 through 26. We started to look at these verses last week, and we'll just briefly review, but then we'll go into greater depth. They're important verses for us in terms of our calling as Christian people. So Paul, again, writing to Timothy, says, Now in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, He will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So, flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. We said that last week there are a great many misconceptions about what it means to be a Christian. Uh, Many people think that being a Christian is simply believing in Jesus Christ so that you can get your ticket punch and go to heaven when you die. And actually, when we say believe in Christ, we have to ask the question, what do we really mean by that? Because James tells us in his epistle that even the devil believes in God. That is to say, believes that God exists. It's interesting to note that when Jesus was ministering on this earth, it was almost always the case that those who recognized him first for who he really was just a rabbi, an itinerant preacher, but literally as the Son of God, were who? Demon-possessed people were oftentimes the ones who recognized him. I think about the Apostle Paul and and Silas when they were in Philippi. It was a demon-possessed girl who went around shouting at the top of her lungs, these men are servants of the Most High God, and they have come here to show you the way to salvation. It's interesting, a demon-possessed girl was the first one to witness to the truth of the gospel in that regard. So it's not simply enough to believe 
God to believe that Christ exists. Even the devil believes that. And it's not enough simply to say, well, I've been saved, so I can go to heaven when I die. No, that's not the heart of Christianity. And I said last week that if you were to ask somebody to explain, just stop somebody on the street and ask them to tell you what you what they thought the real essence of Christianity is, you would probably get any number of answers. Most of which would probably be wrong. For example, many people would say, well, Christianity is is a religion. It's one of the great three monotheistic religions, like Judaism and Islam, and then you have Christianity. But if you press them more and you said, well, yes, that's true, but, but what is the heart of this religion? They would probably give you one of three answers, and we talked about this last week. Some people would say, well, Christianity is at its heart a creed. It's a set of beliefs. There's certainly no doubt about the fact that we Christians have a creed, don't we? We have doctrines. We have set beliefs. We stand up every Sunday and profess our faith in the words of the Nicene Creed. And when it's a morning prayer Sunday, we profess our faith in the words of the Apostles' Creed. And if you look in the back of the Book of Common Prayer, you'll notice there's a third creed that we subscribe to, and that's the Athanasian Creed. So we Christians certainly have creeds. There are certain things that we do indeed believe in. But I submit to you that it is possible to be orthodox in your theology, to believe all the right things, and to still miss the heart of Christianity. If you don't believe me, just think about the Pharisees in the New Testament. The Pharisees were the conservatives of their day. They believed all of the right things. They took the law seriously. And what did Jesus call them? He called them whited sepulchers, whitewashed tombs. He said they were polished and impressive on the outside, but on the inside they were filled with dead men's bones and every kind of evil. Well, that's a way to win friends and influence people, isn't it? So while it's true that Christianity has a creed, it is not true that Christianity at its essence, at its heart, is a creed. It's possible to believe all the right things and miss the heart of the faith. Somebody else might say, well then, Christianity, if it's not a creed, it's a code of conduct. It's a way of living your life. And there's no doubt about the fact that as Christians, we do have a code of conduct. The scripture says that we are to be holy as our Father in heaven is holy. Indeed, we have the highest ethic, the ethic of unconditional, self-sacrificing love. But while that ethic is certainly a part of Christianity, you really can't say that it's part of Christianity. Why? Because if you think about it, there are a lot of moral atheists out there in the world today. In fact, this is one of the things that I hate to say brings disrepute upon the Christian faith because there are some times when there are unbelievers out there in the world who are living better than believers do. Indeed, there are times when there are members of the church who live as what? Hypocrites. So while it's true that Christianity certainly has a code of conduct, a very high code of conduct, we have the Ten Commandments, for instance. We have the summary of the law. That is not the heart of Christianity. It's possible to have those things and still miss the essence of the faith. Somebody else might say, well, if Christianity is not at its heart a creed, if Christianity at its heart is not a code of conduct, then perhaps Christianity is a collection of religious ceremonies. There's certainly no doubt about the fact that we have plenty of those. Just go through the Book of Common Prayer sometime. You'll find a service for practically everything. 
We said there's morning prayer, there's evening prayer, there's Holy Eucharist. And there's not just morning prayer and evening prayer and Holy Eucharist, there's morning prayer right one, morning prayer right two, Holy Eucharist right one, right two, and then there's a whole series of prayers and so forth. That's what that book is all about. It's no small book. Great collection of services. And don't get me wrong, Christianity certainly has within it an emphasis upon worship. We said the word worship comes from the Old English. It means to apply worth or value. It means worth-ship. I would go so far as to say that what we do on Sunday morning is the most important thing that we do throughout the week. But while a collection of religious ceremonies, cult in the old sense, is a part of Christianity, it is not the heart of Christianity. I pointed out last week that it is difficult, but it's possible, to have all of those things. That is to be orthodox in your theology, upstanding in terms of your morality, in the way you live, faithful in your church attendance week after week, and still, still miss the heart of Christianity. Why? Because at its heart, Christianity is not religion. Christianity, at its heart, is about a relationship. I pointed out to you last week, John Wesley was a person who, until his conversion that night in Aldersgate was all of those things. Orthodox in his theology. He'd stand up and say the creed without ever crossing his fingers. He cared for people. He cared for the down and outers, worked among those in Bedlam. He was faithful in his church attendance. Did you know he actually memorized the entire book of Psalms? And yet he himself would have told you that he had missed the heart of Christianity because Christianity is a relationship. It's fellowship. And let me tell you, there are lots of people out there in the world who know a great deal about God. But they don't know him. You can know a great deal about the President of the United States or the Queen of England. But if somebody says, yes, but I want to know, do you really know them? Now that's another matter entirely, isn't it? At its heart, Christianity is not simply academic exercise. Christianity is about a relationship. It is about knowing God. I, I don't often do this, but let me commend a book to you if you've never read it. There's a wonderful book by that title, Knowing God, by J.I. Packer. If you've never read that book, it's a classic. Get that book and read it. It will change your life if you never have. And it will change completely your understanding of what it means really to be a Christ one, a Christian, a follower of Jesus. At its heart, Christianity is about having a personal relationship with the Lord. There's an old Baptist hymn called In the Garden. Anybody know that old hymn? I come to the garden alone while the dew is still on the roses. You know that one? And the voice I hear as I tarry there, the Son of God discloses. And he walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me I am his own. And the joy we share as we tarry there, none other has ever known. That's what it means to be a Christian, you see. It's to be in fellowship. It's to be in communion with Christ. It's to have that intimacy with Christ. And so many people don't. We talked last week about the value of knowing Christ. When you know Christ, what a difference that makes in a person's life. You want to know Christ, why? Because it's only through knowing Christ that you can have a knowledge of what life really is all about. 
true life. You know, so many people spend their whole lives trying to figure out why they're here. Trying to, to chase that elusive butterfly, as the song says, of happiness. They may have everything that the world has to offer, but somehow they just don't feel fulfilled. You ever known people like that? They are restless. St. Augustine put it so well. He said, oh, Lord, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. Do you have a restless heart this morning? There are many people out there that do. They're, they're looking for something. And no matter how much they achieve, no matter how much they accomplish, there is still something. There is still this gnawing hunger deep down in their very being that has never been satisfied. Try as they might. Well, if you want to know what life is all about, if you want to know what true life is, you have to know Jesus Christ. He said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. It's interesting to note that he was pretty emphatic in John 14, 6. Today, you go to many funerals, and uh, they cut out that verse, especially the last part, and no one comes to the Father but by me, because we find that to be a little offensive. The question, of course, is not whether it's offensive. The real question is whether it's true. There are lots of things that we don't like to hear in life. Let's face it. It doesn't change the fact that they're true. And Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. And he didn't say, I am a way, a truth, a life. He said, what? I am the way, the truth, the life. That's, if you want life, you're going to have to find it in him. He said, I have come that they may have life, and listen to this, have it to the full. See, God doesn't want us merely to exist. So many people out there in the world are just existing, just holding on from day to day, because that's what life is all about. That's what Henry Ford thought of history. He didn't think history had any purpose, any value, any significance. Somebody once asked Henry Ford, what is history? And you know what he said? It's the succession of one damn thing after another. You know, that's the way it is for some people's lives, isn't it? That's the way it feels sometimes. Just the succession of one damn thing after another. But that's not living, folks. That's existing. Jesus Christ came, he said, that we may have life and have it abundantly. But if you don't have that relationship with him, you'll never experience true life. Never experience it. It's only through a knowledge of God that we can have an understanding of our world. It's only by knowing God that we can know the world. Why? Because for the most part, the story of the world is the story of individuals written at large. You know, so often we, we pick up the newspaper and we look at the newspaper, we watch the evening news, or we log on to the BBC or CBS or whatever it may be, and we look at what's happening in the world and we wonder to ourselves, what in the world is happening? Quite literally, what in the world is happening? How many of you are concerned about the state of the world right now? Sure we are. And you're not just concerned about the state of the world, you're concerned about the state of the country. And you wonder, what in the world is happening? Ah, but you see, if you want to understand what's happening in the world... You've got to have a relationship with the one who made it. 
He will give you an insight into things. Listen, let me tell you something very clearly here. In terms of what's happening right now in the world, you and I can be shocked, but we should not be surprised. We can be shocked, but we should not be surprised. Why? Because Jesus said this is the way it was going to be. In Matthew 24, he said, because of the increase of wickedness in the last days, the love of many will grow cold. He said, but the one who perseveres to the end will be saved. Now, Jesus spoke those words 2,000 years ago. And he said, but because of the increase of the wickedness in the last days. So the last days, in case you're wondering what that, are we living in the last days? Are we living in the last of the last days? Let me tell you what the Bible means by the last days. It's that whole period of time between the Lord's ascension and his return in glory. That's the last, those are the last days. Now, are we close to the very last of the last days? Are we very close to that grand finale when Christ will come again? Well, we don't know. I can tell you one thing, we're a lot closer than the disciples were when Jesus first spoke those words. And what did he say? Because of the increase of wickedness in the last days, the love of many will grow cold. So for 2,000 years, the wickedness has been what? Increasing. And it seems that we are inventing ways anymore of doing evil. And many things that were created for good, technology, there's nothing necessarily wrong with technology in and of itself, but because of fallen, sinful, broken human beings, they take that which is good and they do what? They twist it and distort it, and it can be used for evil. So the same internet that can be used to transmit information can also be used to transmit pornography. And so you see, in the increase of wickedness in the last days, the love of many will grow cold. Why are we surprised? We should be shocked, perhaps, because, my goodness, we can't believe that human beings would do this, that, and the other thing, but we should not be surprised. If you want to understand why the world is the way that it is, my friends, have a relationship with Jesus Christ, and he'll give you insight. Because he's the one that made the world. Isn't that what John says? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And nothing was made except through him. So the value of knowing God is that you begin to know what life is all about. You begin to discover what true life is. Let me tell you, I have known people who have had nothing, nothing in terms of all the advantages that we have. They've had no affluence, they haven't had good medical care, and yet they have had a transcendent joy, the likes of which most Americans have never experienced. They've had Jesus Christ. And everything else, as the Apostle Paul says, they have counted as loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing him. It can be true for you. Knowledge of God also brings knowledge of self and purpose. Billions of dollars are spent annually in the United States by people who go to psychiatrists and psychologists me, I'm a firm believer that there's a good place for those people in the world. I believe that there's a need for psychologists and psychiatrists, particularly Christian psychiatrists and Christian psychologists. But so many people are out there trying to figure out what their niche in the world is. 
They're out there desperate to find out what their raison d'etre, their reason for being is. People want to be needed. How many people out there want to be needed today? Don't you want to know that your life is of value, that it's of significance, that when you come to the end of your day, it has not been for naught? Of course we do. That's what gives life purpose. But so many people can't figure it out. Recently, I had a friend, I shared this in the um, Thursday morning Bible study, or the Thursday afternoon Bible study, on Acts. I have a friend who I went to high school with, she's a brilliant young woman, um, graduated uh, top of our class in high school and then went off to the University of Pittsburgh and graduated summa cum laude. Brilliant young woman, uh, very successful, but she posted on Facebook a little confession. She said, do any of you ever wonder about what your purpose in life is? Now, this is a woman who's made a lot of money, very successful, got everything that the world says she should have. She says she's got the world by the tail. And she said, do any of you ever wonder what your purpose in life is? She said, I do. She said, I think about it a lot. And it's interesting how people responded to that. All of the comments were so discouraging. And there was no consistency whatsoever. Your purpose is whatever you want it to be. Well, that hasn't been true for her. I don't know the way in on those sorts of things. I find that it just becomes a black hole and you get sucked into it. But I weighed into it on this occasion. I said, if you want to know what your purpose in life is, why don't you go and ask the one who made you? If I come upon an invention and I don't have any idea as to what it's for, the best thing I could do is what? Ask the inventor. He'll tell me exactly what it was created for, what it was intended to do. If you want to know what your purpose in life is, why you're here, what your raison d'etre, your reason for being is, why not ask the one who made you? Going and asking somebody else, what good is that going to do? See, that's the value of having a relationship with Christ. You begin to understand what life is all about. Why? Because he is the life. You begin to understand the knowledge of the world. Why? Because he made the world. You begin to understand your place in the world, your purpose. Because he made you and put you in this world. And finally, it's through a knowledge of God that you begin to understand really what the church is all about. See, the church is the new Israel. The church is Christ's body on earth. Many people have no idea what the church is really all about. I want to emphasize this to you. I don't want to keep hammering on this, but I want you to be aware of it because of the, 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 the period of uncertainty that we're in right now. I, I understand completely the attachment that we human beings have to places. I do understand that. I, I understand it perhaps better than you know, and I know that if we are called to leave this place, it's a sacrifice. For many of you, you've been here for generations, and I get that. I do want you to understand that the clergy are sacrificing too. I want you to understand, we do understand the concept of sacrifice. But I also want you to understand that the church, the church is not bricks, mortar, and stone. If that's what we think, we have missed the heart of the gospel. The church is the body of Christ. 
The church is that instrument that God uses to go out there and bring the nations to the knees. It is that instrument that God uses to heal the wounds of the nations. That simply happens to be the place where the church gathers on Sunday morning. Look around this room this morning. This is the church. You are the church. What did Jesus say? Where two or three are gathered, I am there in their midst. That's the church. And no matter what the enemies of the church have tried to do over the centuries, and they have tried to stamp it out, they've never succeeded. Why? Because the gates of hell will never prevail against the church. Isn't that what Jesus said? And I want you to think about that for a minute. When he said... The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. The gates of what? Hell. Now, you think about it. What are gates used for normally? To keep people out or to keep people in. What does that tell us? We have a tendency, when we think of that passage, to think of hell attacking the church, don't we? Actually, it's the other way around. It's the church... Attacking the very gates of hell, storming the gates of hell. And what? Those gates cannot prevail against the church. Hell can close its gates and try to keep people in and try to keep the church out, but the church is like a mighty army, and it cannot prevail. That's what the church is supposed to be. C.T. Studd, who was a great English cricketer in the uh, day when people believed in the muscular Christian, you remember that? Some of you have perhaps seen the movie Fire, same time period. And, and C.T. Studd was a great English cricketer. He was a Cambridge graduate, and uh, he was a wonderful Christian. And he gave up his athletic career in order to do mission work in India and other places. And somebody once asked him why he was doing that. They said, can't you serve God here in England? And this is what he said. He said, there are some people who want to live comfortably within, within the sound of the chapel bell. He said, I want to run a rescue mission within a yard of hell. There are some people who want to live comfortably within earshot of the chapel bell. I want to run a rescue mission within a yard of hell. Now, let me tell you something. That's life with a purpose. And that's the work that lasts. Why? Because as Andrew pointed out in his sermon last week, everything in this life will eventually come to naught. Earth to earth and ashes to ashes and dust to dust. Nothing stands. Nothing remains except for Christ, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and your soul and mine. Which means that everything you're going to do will eventually come to naught. No matter how hard you work, we can erect a marble plaque to you, but when all is said and done, sooner or later it's going to come to naught, and nobody's going to remember who you are on that marble plaque. I promise you. In, in St. Helena Cemetery, we had a, 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 all these wonderful tombstones, and I would sometimes, I told you, practice my sermons by walking through, and one day I was back in the corner, and I saw a tombstone to a woman who was described as the Belle of Beaufort. I thought, wow, there's a lot of things. You, the Belle of Beaufort. Now, who was she? And I asked everybody. I asked old Bufortonians, who? The Belle of what? No, I don't have any clue. 
I went and asked the church archivist. Who is that woman, the Bell of No clue, no. In her day, she must have been the Bell of Beaufort. But nobody remembered it. Let me tell you something. You lead one person to faith in Jesus Christ, and that's a work that lasts. Why? Because that person will be with you and with Christ for all eternity. That's the work that lasts, my friends. Now, it doesn't mean you have to go into full-time ministry. Actually, you do. I'm just going to be honest with you. Christian life is full-time ministry. That doesn't mean you have to put on a collar. It doesn't mean you have to don the robes and the stool and all of that and climb into the pulpit. But whatever your vocation is, you are called to full-time ministry. Whether you're a doctor, remind your patients that, yes, you are a healer, but you heal in the name of him who is the great physician. If you're a lawyer, never forget that there is another judge that we will one day all have to answer for. If you're a teacher, don't forget that Jesus was the what? The good teacher. And if you're a parent or a grandparent, don't forget the fact that he is what? Our heavenly father. Whatever your vocation, you are called to full-time ministry as a Christian. That is our purpose on earth. That's why Timothy is told here by Paul that we've not only been saved from something, we have been saved for something. He says, in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable use. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, and ready for every good work. Folks, I want you to understand, you have been saved for a purpose, and that purpose is to live for the glory of God. To be a vessel, a choice vessel in his hand. Now, what is interesting is that at first glance, you might think Paul is simply talking about believers. Actually, if you read closely, you discover that Paul is talking about all people. He's saying every single person on earth is a vessel that God will use. So in the economy, in God's great provision, nothing is lost in that sense. In that sense, no one's life is a true waste because God will use their life. But while some vessels are used for noble purposes, some vessels are used for ignoble purposes. When you read through the Bible, you notice that God used... Those of faith, purposes. Moses and Elijah and John the Baptist, Peter and Paul and all the rest. But let's not forget that he also used people who were non-believers. He used Pharaoh, didn't he? In fact, the, the Bible says, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my glory in you. Pharaoh's heart was hardened toward God, but God used him anyway. In spite of himself, God used Nebuchadnezzar in the Old Testament as an instrument to chastise his people. And the same thing was true for Cyrus of Persia. Same true thing is true for even for Judas, if you think about it. Here was Judas out there to thwart the purposes of God, to sell Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, to get rid of the Lord. And what did God do? He even used Judas. 
Now, don't get me wrong. I am not suggesting to you that that's what God decided to do. I'm going to use Judas for this purpose. Judas chose freely. But God used even his free choices in his grand plan. That's called the sovereignty of God. And the only question you have to ask yourself this morning is, in light of these verses, is how is God going to use me? Will I be used? You're going to be used one way or the other, but will you be used for noble purposes or will you be used for ignoble purposes? Let me give you an example from your own home. We have all kinds of vessels in our house. And some of those vessels, some of those things, those instruments are used for noble purposes, aren't they? Like your fine china. Use your fine china, what? For noble purposes, don't you? Most of us don't eat off of our fine china every day. I think people are getting a little more relaxed when it comes to that sort of thing. But many people don't. We bring those, the fine china out on what? Special occasions. And what do you do with your fine china? You not only use it for special occasions, it's so important, it's so noble, we display it, don't we? That's the sort of thing that we, we, we put out for everybody to what? To see. We, we want it to be seen. And then there are those other vessels. They're used, but they're not really noble. And what do we do with those ignoble instruments? Well, you don't put them in a cabinet and light it for all the world to see. You put it away, locked behind a door so that nobody can see it. How about you? How do you want to be used by God? If, if you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, He wants to use you. You want to be used for noble purposes or for ignoble purposes. It's your choice, you see. John Newton came to that realization. You know who John Newton was, don't you? The author of Amazing Grace. He was a man who was a slave trader. They say that he was the worst swear in the merchant marines, the merchant navy. He was a terrible man. Uh, on one occasion, he was um, uh, the ship's pilot, and uh, he became drunk, broke into the captain's store, and uh, became drunk and tore up the ship, wounded a number of other sailors, and in the fight, he was thrown overboard. And they didn't know what to do with him, but they needed the pilot. And so what did they do? They had to get him back on board. One of, his other, one of the other fellow sailors was told to get him back on board. Instead of throwing him a line, he threw him a harpoon. <laughs> Harpooned him right through the thigh. They dragged him aboard, threw him down in the bilge of the ship, down in there in that filthy water in the bottom until he cooled off. And the result was that it became infected. It was caught in a great storm. The ship was about to be torn apart. And he realized, he came to the realization, oh my gosh, I've made a mess of my life. And in his desperation, he cried out to God, Lord, if you save me, I will change. And the Lord delivered him. Delivered the ship. Delivered Newton. And he went back to England and he reformed his life. He gave his life to Jesus Christ. 
and begin to understand what his real purpose was. Here was a man who was restless, always searching, always longing for something more. And for the first time, he began to understand what life was all about. And he who had been an ignoble vessel suddenly became a noble vessel. And this is my favorite quote by John Newton. I know the, the words of amazing grace are wonderful, but I love this. Somebody once asked him if he was worthy to be a clergyman, and he said this. He said, I am not the man I ought to be. I am not the man I wish to be. And I am not the man I hope to be, but by the grace of God, I am not the man I used to be. Wouldn't you like to be able to say that? Let me tell you, that's the gospel, folks. You are never too far gone. You can never fall too far from God's grace. C.H. Spurgeon once said, I don't care how great the sinner is. Make him out to be an elephantine sinner. And there is still room in the ark of Christ Jesus, even for the vilest of the vile. Maybe you've been restless your whole life. Maybe you're searching for something. Maybe you've never had that relationship with Christ. You can have that relationship, and you can find your purpose in this life. But you will be used. Either as John Newton was for a noble purpose, or as Judas was for an ignoble purpose. I have sinned in that I have betrayed the innocent blood. But look at verse 21. Therefore, therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. I want you to understand something. Mops and buckets can't choose their purpose. But we can by God's grace. Now you wonder, how does that happen? It happens when you make a U-turn. This is what the Bible calls repentance. The Greek word is metanoia. It literally means a change of mind. But it's a change of mind that affects the entire body. It's not a 360. It's not going in circles. It's a 180. It means you're going down a path and you realize that that is a path toward destruction and you turn around and you come back. Come back where? To the bishop and the shepherd of your soul. That's how it happens, folks. And you're never too far down that path. You would say, well, I've been living 90 years. Let me tell you something. Hugh Hefner, five minutes before he died, was not too far down that path that he couldn't have repented and come back. The thief on the cross at the last moment was not too far down that path to say, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. Now, for those of us who've been on the path for a long time, that gets a little irritating. <laughs> he had all his fun. He ate his cake. But is that true? You see, if true life is being in fellowship with Jesus Christ, if it's having that peace which passes human understanding, that peace of God which transcends everything that's happening in the world. You know, many people have happiness, but they don't have joy. And there's a difference between the two. Happiness is contingent upon your circumstances. If everything's going your way, you're happy. 
But how many of you have ever experienced a life in which everything has gone your way? Uh, but you see, joy, joy and that peace. And by the way, that's what most of us are looking for. We're looking for peace. Not just an absence of conflict, but peace of mind, peace of heart, what the Jews like to call shalom. We're all looking for that. We're all longing for that. And the only place you can find that is in the one who personified it. So no matter how far you are down that path, there's still the opportunity to turn around and come back and discover for as much time as God has given you what true, Lord, what true joy, what true living is really all about. Now, what does repentance look like? What, is it, what does it look like to make a 180? It's one thing to say that. What does it look like? Well, Paul tells us a little bit of what it looks like. He says repentance looks like this. A fleeing of youthful passions. Look at verse 22. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. What does it mean to turn away from youthful passions? I think most of the time when we think of turning away from youthful passions, we think of people who turn away from lust. Now, that may be part of it, but I would argue that it's a very small part of it. What does it mean to turn away from youthful passions? Well, it means to turn away from the desires of the flesh sometimes, yes. But I think for a lot of young men, it means to turn away from the desire to be right. Remember Andrew in his sermon last week talked about young men's disease, that desire to be respected, that desire to be right. How many young people have you ever met that always want to be right? And it's not just young people. Some people never grow up. They want to be right their whole life. You know, sometimes Kristen and I will get into a disagreement. And um, she said, you know, that's the problem with being married to a minister. And I said, what? She said, you can sound so right even when you're wrong. Ever know people like that? Oh, sometimes wrong, but never in doubt. <laughs> to repent means to admit you were wrong. You were wrong about life, wrong about your own life, you're wrong about God. And you want to admit that, and you want to come back. Turn away from youthful passions is to turn away from impatience. I've told you, the one Christian virtue I've never prayed for is patience. Because I know God's recipe for getting it. It normally involves suffering or difficulty. I'm having to learn patience right now, I've got to tell you, in this period of waiting while we're, we're at the mercy of the court. And a few weeks ago, I was praying to the Lord, and I said, Lord, I didn't ask for patience. I didn't ask for this. And it's almost as though he whispered in my ear, yeah, but you need it. <laughs> it's to flee impatience. We want it, and we want it what? Right now. Lord, give me patience and give it to me now. <laughs> it's to flee impulsiveness. Spur of the moment, flying off the handle. That's what it means to flee youthful passions. And it means to flee childish 
behavior. And we'll come back to that in just a minute. So it means to turn away from things. But to turn away from things, you have to turn to something, don't you? Turn to righteousness, a right relationship with God. That's what righteousness means. It doesn't mean perfection. None of us is perfect. It means a right relationship with God. So to turn away from these other things and turn to a right relationship with God from which will flow faith, love, and peace. And here's something else. That turning is a one-time event, but it's also a continuous event. The initial turning is when you admit that you've made a mess of your life, that you cannot fix yourself, that you are turning to Jesus Christ and appealing to Him to save you. And He will do that. I've always had there's always one prayer that God always hear, and that is the prayer that Peter uttered just as he was about to slip beneath the waves. And he said, Lord, save me. And Jesus took him by the hand. When you utter that prayer, the Lord will save you from yourself. But this process of becoming Christ-like, this process of fleeing youthful passions and pursuing righteousness, faith, love, and peace, let me tell you something, folks, that is a process. It is a continuous turning away and a turning to. Justification is instantaneous. Sanctification is a lifelong process. You are a work in progress. Here's the final thing. You need to reckon yourself dead. Reckon yourself dead to those old ways. Consider yourself dead and recognize that you have nowhere to go but forward. When you realize you can't go back, folks, that's why I said it's a matter of fleeing childish behavior. Jesus tells us we are to be childlike, but we are not supposed to be childish. When you see a man, a grown man, throw a temper tantrum because he did not get his way, what do you say to him? Grow up. That's what God is saying to us. He's saying it is time to grow up. If you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you are a new creation. And you can't go back. How often do we all want to go back? Don't you want to go back? We're nostalgic people. Let me tell you the difference between tradition and nostalgia, if you've never heard this before. Tradition is the living faith of the dead. Nostalgia is the dead faith of the living. We all want to go back to the good old days, don't we? Actually, if we went back, we would discover that the days were really not all that good to begin with. You know, when you're a teenager, you can't wait to drive the car. And then when you turn 16, you can't wait to do what? Turn 21. And then when you're 21, you can't wait until you're 25. And then you're 25, and you really wish you could go back and be 16 again. But you can't go back, can you? You can't go back when you're 40 or 50 or 60 and act as though you're 20. When we see people like that, we laugh at them. We say they're having a midlife crisis. We, we, we say that they're acting childishly. We recognize you can't go back, so what? You can only go forward. So as Christians, we are called to give our life to Christ. Give it all. And he will give in return. 
to us everything that our hearts long for. We are to turn away from all these other things and turn to Jesus Christ, and he will make us vessels fit for his use. Noble vessels that he can set on display for all the world to see. That others may come to know us, and in coming to know us, may come to know him and to know his life everlasting. That is good news. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would help us to understand what it really means to be a Christian. Help us to turn away from all those things, even good things, Lord, but things that are not the best. Help us to flee the youthful passions, our impatience, our pride, our arrogance. And help us to admit that we've been wrong and come to Jesus Christ. Lord, grant us the grace to do this daily so that you can display yourself in us, that the whole world may come to know you and the joy and peace of your salvation. For we ask this in Jesus' name.